Before we get to the podcast this week, we are now three nights into Castrol Flow Racing Night in America. And while you for sure need to know that it is the best mini series in the country, because without question it is, you also need to know that our official apparel provider is none other than the king of dirt track racing apparel, Arizona Sports Shirts. And I thought about this when I was working on this spot. I could write up something clever about Arizona or gotarace.com, but the bottom line is that no one has been doing it longer than Carl and Gerald, and honestly, no one has done it better. They've just done it better than everyone else. You can find Castrol's Flow Racing Night in America apparel on the gotarace.com website. And just in general, if you're a driver, a track, a special event, a manufacturer, and you're thinking, I need to get t-shirts or any other kind of apparel done, just call Gerald at Arizona Sports Shirts and Gotta Race, and he will handle it. Trust me, it'll be painless, it'll be fairly priced, and the quality is absolutely excellent and I stand behind that statement. Also really quick our next Castrol event is this coming Wednesday May 19th at Marshalltown Speedway in Marshalltown, Iowa. Not a race you want to miss. I look forward to exposing the world to one of the best kept secrets in dirt track racing. That's Marshalltown, Toby Cruz's track. I am seriously pumped about this one. Maybe of all 10, the one I'm most excited about. All right, here we go. And most importantly, welcome to dirtondirt.com. This is the Rigsby Report podcast for Thursday, May 13th, and we have a tough act to follow this week because the one that we just did in April with uh, Cody Summer, that was the most listened to podcast I have ever done since I started this. And I think that's equal parts. We are really starting to, to find our ground with the Rigsby Report. And Cody didn't really hold back, man. He really said what he was thinking. And obviously that resonated with the audience. Is that viewership and listens number really picked up over 10 days? It didn't stay flat. It got more and more as word spread about what Cody said. It escalated as the time passed. And that was cool. That does not often happen. Cody was obviously great, but so is today's guest. Certainly, this podcast a little different, as it really is, it's just two great friends talking. Michael Rigsby and Dustin Jarrett giving you a view inside what a typical ride to the racetrack would be like if we were both sitting in the car together just BSing going down the road. Most of you know DJ is one of the best, if not the best, play-by-play announcer for dirt track racing in America, but there really is a lot more to him than that. We talked for almost an hour about his life, his career, his borderline sick obsession with racing that I tease him about nonstop, and some industry stuff in the last half of the podcast as well as we jump around about current things happening in the world of dirt late model racing. I think I smiled during this Rigsby report maybe more than anyone I've done. DJ truly is a great person, and you'll hear that in this interview really really shine through. It's so good. I want to get right to it this week. No notes before the podcast. Here it is, my interview with Dustin Jarrett. It's not often in business that friendship and work come together. I mean, I guess I shouldn't totally say that. In a lot of places, people make friends at work, but by and large, I feel like those are more acquaintances than actual friends. I am very proud to say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, that my guest today actually falls into the good, if not great, friend category for me, even though we did meet at business through the business of dirt track racing. We may not vacation around the world together, or we may not talk every single day. We don't speak on the phone. We usually text or, or Slack message every day. But I do know that if I truly needed something, and I hope he knows this is reciprocal, that he'd be there for me. And for sure, without question, I would be there for him. He also happens to be one of the most interesting people in dirt track racing, and I'm not sure he ever fairly gets credit for that just because we see him so much and we hear him so much, but Dustin Jarrett really does have an interesting story to tell, and we're going to get to that today. My guest on the Rigsby Report, episode 17, is DJ Dustin Jarrett. DJ, let's just rip the Band-Aid off first and foremost. Most annoying Michael Rigsby work story, one where you just wanted to just absolutely kill me. I know let's let's break the ice with that, DJ. Do you have one that comes to mind? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I have one that comes to mind, but I, I will tell you that your timing, whether you know this or not, is just impeccable sometimes because 
I will have I will be juggling twelve different balls <laughs> at my desk, and you will just out of the blue be like, DJ, I need you to do this right now. <laughs> like not right now. Like it needed done yesterday, and that is I've probably never actually told you that before, but uh, but no, there there have been several times where I'm I'm doing about twenty different things, and you just you need something yesterday. And I honestly, it's not it's probably not quite to that level now is is maybe what it was when i was handling the uh the advertising <laughs> and social media for dirt on dirt but there were there were a few times I, about a year ago like when the pandemic was going on man i i i had a i had a drink or two in your honor after a long hard day's worth of work well this is why we can be good friends though right in front of roughly 15 to 20,000 people that will listen to this you can tear me down there and i'm a, i'm willing to accept it and know that my personality can be a little much sometimes so I accept that, and I will be more cognizant moving forward. It's like a little therapy session we're having here, DJ. It's good. This is good for us, right? <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Enough bad stuff about me. Uh, people know you, and I mean this, is is one of the true voices of Dirt Late Model Racing. I, I think you know, James Essex is sort of the godfather of announcing, but you are without question one of the true voices of our sport. You've called Eldora for so long. Your voice is all over Dirt on Dirt Flow Racing. It's been on other platforms as well. But I want to know your growing up story. And I don't even necessarily mean, you know, your racing story. We're going to get to that. But where are you from, for those that don't know, what part of the country, your family, how it shaped you, all of that. Kind of take me back to baby DJ, That the genesis of that, if you could. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was born and raised in eastern Ohio. I, I tell people St. Clairsville because that is the most recognizable town because St. Clairsville Speedway was always around, and, and that just kind of resonates, I think, with uh, with racing folks. But I actually grew up in a wee little town called Bethesda. I mean, we, we had, you know, zero stoplights, town of about 1,000 people, you know, one gas station, one little town market and things like that. And little DJ was always uh, – riding his bicycle uptown to buy baseball cards and, you know, play video games at the, at the pizza place and all this other stuff. But, uh, I was, I was always a sports kid too. Like my dad always had me involved in sports, man. I, I, um, I wrestled like my entire, like not a lot of folks know that. Like I started at five years old and, uh, I wrestled at least once uh, in one tournament every year, uh, clear up till I got to high school then. And, and same thing with baseball. I played baseball my entire life too. So sports was, I don't know, sports was always, uh, around me. Um, and I was that kid too, that like, I always had the hot wheels cars in the house. And I can remember even announcing like on the little, we had like a tile floor <laughs> and like this one kind of entryway in our house and the, and the tiles, like I would sit in the center of them and like you know make the cars go around me you know and and it got to the point where i don't know i'm probably old enough to know better but it, it got to the point where like ah, eh, this gets boring so i took the cars and i actually smash them outside on the concrete and then take them back inside and see like which ones would still go and, and still <laughs> saying it out loud i'm like god that was like a dumb thing to do back then but that was uh that was me growing up and i, and I lived i mean i lived in this in this Little town, same house, you know, clear up until uh, until I got to college. We are going to dive into later your love. And I don't even think love is probably the word, right word to describe how you feel about racing. We'll stick with love for now because I, I have some adjectives for it later that I'm going to use. <laughs> but, but your racing life, how that started. I wanted to get a glimpse into where you grew up, but now take me into that. Okay, this is how the racing thing began for me. Yeah, I mean... For as long as I can remember, honestly, um, we went to races. I mean, that was that was what we did. You know, I, I can I can honestly probably count on one hand the number of times that our family truly went on a vacation. Uh, and actually, um, I remember one time. I remember asking um, my my parents, you know, hey, why don't all these other kids are going on vacation in the summer? Why aren't you know why don't we go on a vacation? <laughs> and the answer what and the and the answer was well, we're going to races every Friday and Saturday night. You're playing baseball all summer long, and so that was, I mean that that was that was um that was what we did. But we, my dad would go to races when I was five six seven years old, probably St. Clairsville Speedway, which is no longer in operation, was really close to our house. It was about 10 minutes away. Um, we had some friends that raced 
And, and so we would go and, and watch them. Uh, and, and what really, I think, truly got me hooked, I was really young, man. I, I was, I don't know, six or seven years old probably. Um, we, went, uh, we went to a race with one of my dad's friends one time, and, uh, and he said, hey, who do you think is going to win this, this late model feature? And, and St. Clairsville Speedway back then, I mean, they, they had, like a lot of tracks, they had their usual cast of characters that, that you knew were really good, right? And, and so at that age, I didn't really know the names of the guys, but I knew the cars. And he said, I'll bet you a candy bar who's going to win. And I he said, who, who do you want? And, you know, I, I'd gone there enough to know, again, who kind of the good guys were. And I said, I want T8. And T8 was Mark Finall back then. Okay. He was really good at St. Clair. And, uh, and he t- I think he took Ty Long, um, who was also very good at, at St. Clairsville back then. And, um, and Mark Benall won the race that night. I won the candy bar. And, I mean, I was, I was hooked, man. I was hooked after that. I bought a picture of Mark Benall the next week. Uh, <laughs> one, of, one of our friends that raced actually brought Mark over to the stands, and he autographed that picture for me. And, I mean, oh, I was, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, it's just, that, that's just that's how you get hooked in, you know. And, and that was. I, I vividly remember that is like kind of that that moment for me that just that got me hooked. You know, like I wanted to go every single weekend. I remember once when I was young that that you know, kind of bringing this back full circle. I told you I would ride my bicycle up in this little town of ours and and you know play arcade games at the pizza shop. My parents didn't know that. I they thought I was going up to buy baseball cards <laughs> at, the, uh, at the gas station, right? And so what I would do is I would park my bike at the my bicycle at the gas station. And then I would walk to the pizza place and play video games in there, which, which I was, you know, was, for whatever reason, it was just very frowned upon back then by my parents, sure. right? Um, and, and so uh, I remember one time my dad was going to Skyline Speedway, and, uh, and he was, for whatever reason, he was leaving a little earlier. And so he, he drove uptown to get me, to take me to, to Skyline, sees my bike dumped off at the uh, gas station, goes inside, and I'm not in there. I'm nowhere around. And so he's flipping out, right? Like Someone's, know, we're, ta- we're someone's taken Dustin, yeah. <laughs> Someone has taken Dustin. His bike's here. He is gone. And, and he eventually <laughs> finds me, you know, at the pizza shop playing arcade games. And, I mean, it was just hell hath no fury like a dad <laughs> that can't find his kid, right? Like, I couldn't go to Skyline that night. And I remember just, I mean, absolutely screaming, no! you can't go without me like i remember thinking you know there is no way that they are actually going to go to a race without me like it's not going to happen like if i scream enough they'll just get and did they go did they go without you then and they went without me (laughs) larry larry jarrett you son of a bitch (laughs) i can't believe yes that was but that was one of those life moments too that like you know well this will teach him and and it did but i but i i remember just being hooked from that very early age and that mark banal you know betting story that i was i was there every weekend uh from there on out two quick things about that so gambling hooked you on racing which i love you 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 like me you love gambling and number two ty long is so much better than matt long i think we can agree on that a better career than matt long will ever have i think we we agree on both those things gambling and tie better than matt yes 100 percent, 100 percent, and i said i know matt's listening too <laughs> i think you know that part of the country that you grew up in as much as central illinois or east tennessee are tied to dirt track racing that little triangle pocket between 77 and 70 there in southeastern ohio in bethesda near wheeling west virginia were you able to pick up on that when you were growing up, Dustin? I, I think I did in and around Fairbury, but I probably took it for granted a little bit. Like, oh, okay, where I'm growing up is different when it comes to the attitude towards dirt track racing. And I think that area you grew up is similar to that Fairbury and that East Tennessee Bulls Gap area in, in Western PA for late model racing. Where Do you think that affected you? And did you pick up on that as a kid that this is a dirt track space where I live? I don't think that I picked up on it as a kid um, just for the fact that I, I think that I think you do take it for granted a little bit, but in the same sense, when you're, when you're a kid growing up, I, I think that you, you feel like you always feel like your home track or your home region is the best, oh, yeah. right? Like you, you think that, that, you know, you, I remember thinking that, that the mid Ohio Valley, the MOV is, is, you know, we've always called it, man, you know, this has got the the best guys, and it, it and you, I even saw it evolve a little bit from the Ty Longs and the, um, gosh, the Bob Warings and and those guys. You know that that Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania area that that you grew up watching, it evolved from those guys into guys like 
Butch McGill and Frank Wilson and Gary Dalton and, and some others. Um, but I always, too, I would always look at I would always look at other regions or pockets of the country kind of like you and, and think, man, those guys are really good. Like the, I remember specifically um, I remember specifically like that that uh, mid-Atlantic Hagerstown oh, area yeah, yeah. always had really good guys, you know, with Gary Stuhler and Nathan Durberall. And, and I remember thinking, man, I would love to get out there and, and watch <laughs> those guys someday. And I'm probably a teen at this time. And then like that, I remember specifically to that, the Brownstown area, you know, with, oh, the, with the Jim Curry, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Barnett's and them. And I remember reading those race results in Mid-American Auto Racing News. And, and that Again, I'm probably advancing myself into my teen years then, but but thinking like, man, these would be really cool places to go visit someday. When is the first time that you picked up a microphone? Do you, and I don't mean like announcing for Hot Wheels cars, but like an actual in an announcing booth at a racetrack picked up a microphone. Um, I was, I think, 15 at the time. Where was it? And And how... And how that got started is a really funny story too. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want me to dive into that. I do. I do. Yes. uh, Yeah. So it was R and R Speedway in in Zanesville, Ohio, which which is also no longer in in existence. Um, And so how that got started was, I was um, I was I was an aide for the athletic director at our high school and and got to know him really well. I always helped out the football team. I kept stats for him and, and everything, and he. Uh, for whatever reason, liked me. I, I was an annoying kid. I don't know what anybody liked me, but, but he did. And and so he would uh, he would often give me opportunities, to make a little extra money by running the clock at um, all these one-off football games, seventh grade, eighth grade, freshman football games, and everything. And you know, hey, you know, you know they called me Hollywood because I always wore sunglasses. That was my, <laughs> my, my nickname in school. Hollywood, what are you doing this week? I need someone to run the clock. And at some point. Um, when I was, I don't know, a freshman or sophomore in high school, it, for whatever reason, I, I would, I picked up the microphone and just announced the score of a football game. Uh, you know, one of these, again, seventh, eighth grade games, we're talking what a hundred people that was there. I mean, it's not like a family, lot, uh, all family of the kids, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody and, and everything. And, and, you know, I would announce the score and, and, you know, we would win or whatever people would cheer. And, and so you kind of take that one step farther, right? Like you start announcing, Oh, when someone scores and then you kind of, you know, you, you, you hear the crowd getting into it. And so you kind of, you know, you kind of do a little bit more and you start, you start announcing, you know, when, when someone's doing, someone is, is third and short or whatever. And so, um, I go to R&R Speedway one time in, in the middle of this. Again, I'm, I'm probably 14 or 15 at the time. And their, their track announcer, uh, George Kirkbride, he was not there. Um, I, I got to know the folks that ran R&R just from going there every single Friday night. Uh, my uncle uh, raced there. Um, my dad raced there. Uh, and, and so I got to know those folks you know, through, through that. And their announcer wasn't there one week, and so I, I went up to them and, and asked them. I said, uh, I told them, I said, hey, if you guys ever need an announcer, you know, I, I would I would be happy to do it for you. And they said, well, have you ever announced before? And I said, well, yeah, I announced football games. And so, yeah. You know, that, not telling them that all I did is pick up a microphone and tell people what the score of the game was. Seven and, to six, then, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, and, and so, uh, and then they said, well, well, what do you charge? And, and again, I'm 14 or 15. I'm like, I'd do it for free. Oh, of course you said that. <laughs> of course you did. Yeah. Oh. And, and so, and they, and, and I swear to you, they go, well, can you be here next week? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. And, um, and that was, I mean, that was how it got started. Their announcer wasn't there. And, and so, uh, that's why I announced and actually they paid, I think I got $50 was, <laughs> was, was what they ended up giving me. And, and that happened one or two more times that year. And then actually at the end of the season, they asked me, they said, we would like to, you know, would you like to come back and, and be a co-announcer next year? You and George can announce together. And, and that was, that was how it got started. I think I really started to become aware of you. I, I mean, I think I'd see your name every once in a while, like in a racing paper. Like I know you'd help like send results in and stuff, but I think I really started to become really aware of you in those like earliest Lucas oil days of them doing internet broadcasting. Right. And you guys, you know, back then we're sort of on the forefront of what broadcasting in our industry would become. When I say internet broadcasting, I mean, audio streaming only here is what I'm getting at. Take me back DJ to those times 
and what it was like to be calling, you know, calling a race on the internet. And no one can see me, but I'm using the internet in air quotes right now because I remember people being like, "The internet!" Like, what? they couldn't they couldn't wrap their mind around what was going on. What was it like in those earliest as you started to step out and go do some of that stuff, and you were doing like internet broadcasts for Lucas back in the day? What What was that like back then? It was it was surreal um, because. You know that I think the first time that we did it was East Bay 2005. Yeah, and that was which is 16 years ago that, now, right? It's a long time ago, yes. actually. You know, yes. But it's it, it wasn't only that. So that I mean, to kind of set the stage for this yeah. and, and why I say it was surreal. I mean, that was the that was really the first year East Bay kind of blew up. All right, and, and no disrespect to anything before that, but that was the year that they they maxed out. One night they had a hundred and seventeen race yeah. cards. That was their peak year. You know? I, agree. And, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and and so um, and that was also because they had so many cars. And a lot of folks forget this. But they actually they started at like two in the afternoon. Oh yeah, they yeah. would they would go through because they had so many cars. They they would hot lap, they would qualify, they would take a break completely with the racetrack, and 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 then go back and run the program. And so um, during the day, when they would do all of this, I was down in the staging lane. You know, I, I was down there, you know, getting guys in the lineup, shoot, helping stage cars and and everything else. And then for for the night portion when racing actually started. I would go up to the booth with Michael Despain with Spanky, and, and we would call the broadcast. And, and again, back then, you know, we didn't have nearly the technology or the metrics that, that we oh, have yeah. today. And, and so, I mean, we're calling races thinking that we are just, I mean, <laughs> honest to goodness, thinking that we're announcing for tens of thousands of people, right? And, and Sunday night football Spanky. numbers, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and Spanky was, was, I mean, fantastic. He, he kind of coached me to, you know, yeah. his, what he always said was we have to be the eyes and ears for the folks at home because, again, it's audio only. There's no screen. There's no video or anything like that to watch it. And so we did our best to try to paint a picture for the folks that couldn't be there by describing the layout of the track and by being just as descriptive as possible about not just the events but always saying – you know, what the top three or five cars are, what lap someone is on. And, and to be honest, I think that really kind of shaped and, and molded the way that I, I call a lot of races today because you just you had to be so descriptive back then because people could hear everything, but they couldn't see it. I remember telling my dad, like in 2005, because I graduated college and I was working up at NBC in Wisconsin, and I was like, Dad, I'm going to listen to East Bay in February. I was going to a Badger basketball game to cover it, but I wanted to listen to East Bay in February 1st. And I was like, Dad, you can get it on your computer. I might as well have told my dad that like the most unbelievable thing that anyone had ever told another human being what do you mean I can get it on my computer like he could not <laughs> like comprehend like what I was saying to him right I it, it really was a different time but I think you're right DJ I think you guys sort of shaped you know it wasn't that long after that they started broadcasting from East Bay and we did Cedar Lake four or five years later so um it, it was just yeah I will always sort of have fond memories of you and Spanky calling those early races and th this is a little bit off that topic but it's not really off that topic. I think you and I, I think anyway, we're both original 100 members, first 100 members of the 4M message board. Obviously, <laughs> now I think I know I was. I think you were too. Obviously, now with the advent of all this other technology, 4M is a bit outdated and it's not used as much. But the younger crowd may not understand, DJ. The 4M circa 96 through like 2004 or 5. I mean, it whole it was it was the mecca, wasn't it? The 4M was it was where everything about late model racing existed on the internet. Oh, I mean, if you if you wanted to know what was going on, that was that was where you went. And and the really cool thing was, I mean, back then um, they used to do like um, once or twice a year different places. They used to do 4M meetups, oh, yeah, right? And yeah. so you could put you could put names with faces and, and everything. I, I specifically remember going to one at Bulls Gap. I was time. I was at that one. You and I have talked. How did we not no, meet? I was at that. It was the spring thaw, right? It was in March. It was. Yes. Yep. It was the one in March. Yeah. And they had uh, I think Carl Short. They brought Carl yep. in as a guest speaker, right? Yes. And I think, and like, so was Lebo there? Lebo, I believe, was there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. Lebo was there. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people. But, I, I, you know, you got to put names with faces for all of these people. Like, oh, there's Mike Sullivan. There's no, Lebo. How you. There's, yep. yeah. How you. That's right. And, and so, and that was how... 
um, you know, the 4M, I mean, really kind of helped shape a, a oh, lot of things. And that was totally. how, that was how you get, that was how I get to meet a lot of people that, that are, um, you know, prominent in, in the sports today, but have had influence. Guys like Jody Shannon yep. and, you know, some of these other folks, you know, even, even Lynx, Dan Rice. I mean, you know, it, that kind of evolved those folks in, in their, their moniker, so to speak, their, their names, they kind of evolved from that. And that's, I mean, like Dan, everybody calls Dan Rice Lynx today because of that, because he was Lynx <laughs> or no weak Lynx for the longest time on 4M. I, you mentioned Jody Shannon. I'm going to have him on this podcast at some point. I, I love Jody. You and I have both have an affinity for him. I, I, he is he is one of the most interesting humans in dirt track racing. I am going to have him on this podcast because that guy can tell some stories, man. Yeah, no, he he does. And, I mean, back – I don't want to, you know, advance our, our – podcast or my story or too much but back when i was living in, in southwest ohio for a while I, I actually i saw jody a lot we we went to some races together and, and everything else told stories and everything oh, yeah. i mean we 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 had a we had some some really really good times together. I, for I, sure. I'm just a, yeah, he, a little upset you didn't call me out at this 1990. It was 97 or 98 spring thaw, wasn't it? Somewhere in there, I think. It was yeah. It was one. Of, I I think it was 90. I think it was 97, and here's how I know this, is because I graduated high school in 97, and I did not go on my senior class trip because I wanted to go to Volunteer Speedway because I had never been there before. <laughs> what a nerd. Yeah, well, well does that? we're going to cover a little bit of that here shortly, so put a pin in your nerdiness for racing. <laughs> Uh, you obviously full time now with us at Flow Sports. Before that, you'd become full time at Dirt on Dirt before the buyout. But for a long time, you were a normie, as I like to say. You had a full time job outside of racing, and racing was your hobby in essence. And I'm being honest that 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 never really sat well with me. Here's this guy who needs to be in racing full time, but you really weren't in racing full time until you were 39 years old, basically 18 years post college where you were not in racing, uh, you had this job in higher education, basically. Did you feel sort of that whole time, eh, this isn't right. I deserve and belong to have a job in motorsports. I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if deserved is the right word. I felt like that I should be. I, I felt like that I, I wanted to be, maybe is a better way to put it. I, I never really felt like that I deserved it um, because, I mean, even today, I still feel like that, that, you know, I pay my dues, and I'm always a student of the game, trying yeah. to learn things. But, but I, I always wondered if the grass was greener on the other side because when you, when when you're not married to racing, when racing is just the mistress, so to speak, but you still do, <laughs> you still cover uh, or announce or write or or whatever for seventy, seventy five, eighty plus races a year. Um, your vacation days get burnt by taking Fridays off to go cover these races, you know? And, and so, um, I mean, that, that, that to me was always probably the biggest struggle that I, that I had, I think was the fact that I, I'm, I'm thinking like, man, I, I'd love to just take a week off sometime and go do this or go do that. And I, I would literally, I would, it, it, whatever our calendar year was usually in higher education that, that went from like, that went from either June 1st to May 31st or from like September 1st to August 31 right. because that's kind of the school year calendar. Um, I would always immediately um, lay out my vacation days. Okay. I've got to, you know, I've got this race to announce this weekend. So I got to take this Friday off. I got to take a half Friday off here. I've got a Sunday show here. So I need to take this Monday off. And that was, that's the thing that I, that I think a lot of, folks don't realize is that for the ones that aren't full-time in racing that, that that's that's the life that's the life you live i mean and you you know you're gone all weekend you're working or announcing or writing or, or doing whatever um and you, you i mean you, you flip the script and do it all over again the following monday and it's just it's really easy to go through and, and burn that time so i i never really felt like i deserved it but i always i always just wanted to be on the the full-time side of the fence i guess you are, and you mentioned taking all that time, um, you're one of the most famous race chasers in the United States. And let me define what, what I think a race chaser is. It's a, a guy or a gal, of course, who doesn't just go to races across the country. Many people do that, right? When I was a kid, I went to Eldora, I went to West Plains, I went to Brownstown. People all do that. They go to Eldora, they go to the big shows. But a guy, a race chaser, is a guy or a gal who goes anywhere, anytime, any place. And one of the sole purposes of what you're doing is to have a high racetrack count, the number of racetracks that you've attended. 
So let me ask this first so we can get your psychosis out there because I want people to understand just how psychotic you are. How many racetracks have you been to, Dustin? And maybe more Uh, impressively or most impressively, how many different states have you seen racing in? Oh Lord, uh, I have I have been to I have been to and seen racing at 283 different <laughs> tracks. <laughs> it sounds really nerdy to say it out loud now. And how many uh, and, states? And I, have, I have seen a race in 48 of the 50 states plus two Canadian provinces. And I have not seen a race. In Alaska, I have Alaska is the only state I've never been to. We keep uh, Kimberly and I keep saying we're going to go there, and last year was the pandemic, and this year we're just too busy with work and, and volleyball and everything. Um, and then I've, I've not seen a race in Rhode Island, and that is because at this particular moment there are zero active racetracks in Rhode Island. As impressive as 280 tracks is, because I mean I'm, I'm obviously well over 100, I think I'm, I'm well short of you, but the 48 states thing is even more impressive to me that do you ever just kind of sit back and go this is act-. and I know by the way Kenny Wallace is going to Alaska to race this year so you have an option I know you'll knock Alaska off the list do I need to build a dirt track in Rhode Island for you so we can complete this 50 for 50 I, I, want you to I, get would, it. <laughs> I would love it I would love it that's that, that is that that's like my ultimate goal is I, I wanna I want to see a race in all 50 states and I am just I have already decided that if if someone puts together a race in Rhode Island, and the last the last race in Rhode Island was actually one of those indoor uh, midget races at the uh, the Dunkin' Donut, what was the Dunkin' Donut Center in Providence? Oh, um, whenever uh, the, the next race that happens in Rhode Island, I am dropping everything and, and going to it because there there may not be another. Look, I look this, this was a deal. So Kimberly and I went to went to Maui on our honeymoon and 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 one of the things that we did this is we poor went woman to a race. this poor woman I love her. She's the sweetest woman. This poor, <laughs> poor woman. Trapped in this marriage. She's trapped, DJ. <laughs> she, she said we could. She's uh, and and let's so look I I was <laughs> She said we could. Like I, I, I was holding her feet to the fire on that, man. I was uh-huh. not. I, no, you said it. We're going. We're going. And so we did. So we knocked out a race while we were in Maui. Everything else we did was for her. That was it. Was totally for her. But that one, that one night, we had to. We had to knock Hawaii off the list. Did, was that a goal when you were a kid, though? Like when you were coming up, DJ. Like at what point did it start to get prolific for you? Where you're like, oh. I'm at 134 racetracks. Did that? When did that become a goal? The states and the number of tracks. When, when does that happen for a race chaser? You know, I think for me, it really kind of started back when I was doing these Battle of the Bluegrass races uh, back in the mid 2000s because I I got the opportunity then to go to a lot of tracks that I didn't go to, and and so you know at some point you know in in I don't know 04 05 something like that. I'm like, oh, you know, I, I kind of tallied up. I'm like, oh, wow, this is the, you know, 75th track I've been to. And I, I mean, I, I, I very much remember, like, being really excited about going to my 100th racetrack, and, and that was in 2007. Um, and that was five-mile point speedway up in up in New York, by the way. But uh, yeah, it was, it was at some point... Yeah, right. It, it was at some point in those in that in my days with the Bob series that I was like, like this is really cool. Like I get to go to all these new racetracks. Like you see all these people. Every racetrack is a little different from the next. And so, I don't know. Somewhere in that in that range, I, I think that that I realized like it was kind of a cool thing to do to go see these tracks. And, and plus, you know, these Battle of the Bluegrass races again. I mean, I was. Even though I lived it for some of them, I lived in Southwest Ohio. I mean, I was still, for context, I was well over an hour away just from Florence, Kentucky, which is about the northernmost part in Kentucky. So to these races, I mean, I'm I'm driving four, five, six hours to call them, and if something would get rained out, you're just you either go to another track or you're stuck, right? And so it was kind of cool when we got rained out, even though you didn't get paid to go to another racetrack and be like, oh hey, I. Got to go to Wartburg, Tennessee, or you know, I got to go to Crossville <laughs> or something like that because you, you, you know you never been there before. Let me, and I will say this: one of the great misconceptions about me is that I, you, t, you, we bust balls, we all bust balls, right? I, we, me, you, Ben, when we're together, we're constantly teasing each other. One of the great misconceptions, but I am trying to become a more self-aware human the older I get. 
I tease you. <laughs> I tease you relentlessly about this, but I want you to know I do appreciate this about you. Like I, I will, I will. I'm sorry. I will forever tease you about this. Todd and I especially will forever tease you about this. But I am like when I tease someone about something like this, I do mean it from a place of love. It is very cool. And your spreadsheet documentation on this, the folks listening at home or in your car on your iPad, whatever, right now. You want to talk about some nerdy shit. The spreadsheet that he has of these tracks attended, DJ, it rivals any like nuclear physicist codes on rockets that I've seen. It's really incredible, to be honest with you. Um, Michael, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I have it up while we're talking. It's, I'm not even kidding. Uh, yeah, no. So it, at some point in my life, Someone told me it might have been my parents. I, I used to I used to buy pictures at the racetracks all the time. I, I was I was the kid that would go through like I visited the photo stand every single week that we were at the racetrack. I would save up my money. Pictures were usually a dollar back then, and I would buy pictures of guys. Yeah. Um, you know, cars that I like, drivers I like, you know, paint what, whatever it was. I would buy pictures, and I would have. I still I have photo albums just completely full of pictures. I've got shoe boxes full of pictures of, of guys. And at some point, uh, I think it was my mom. She she told me she said, you know, you really ought to write down the names of these drivers on these pictures because there's going to come a time when you don't remember who these guys are. And I remember thinking, yeah, right. right I know right. every I know who all of these guys are. You know. And um, and sure enough, I mean, at some point in, I don't know, probably 2002, 2003, and that started happening. It's like, oh, man, I can't remember who this cat is. You know, I, I only saw this guy run one time. And so that was that was kind of where it started. And in 2003, um, I started keeping track of uh, the date, the day of the week, the track, the lo- track's location, what the event was, and, and who won the race. Uh, and then the next year, in 2004, I actually added in the car count for that event as well. So I've got <laughs> I've got all of that dating all the way back to 2003, almost 20 years in the spreadsheet. Todd and I joke all the time with you. Uh, this is a little bit of a long question, but this is this one's really from the heart. You know, we wish we could take tracks away and not add them. Todd and I joke all the time. We wish our list was 10 and not 200. And obviously we're joking on some level, but I want to dive into this a bit. There is no doubt in my mind that Todd and I fall on the surlier side of dirt track racing. We're cranky about it, no doubt. Obviously we love it. We've given our life to it. But you, and I don't think I've ever really told you this, at this level, I think you have like this cosmic part of your soul and your brain that loves dirt track racing at a level that I could never approach. And I don't, I truly mean that as a compliment and and your heart bursts for short track racing and dirt track racing. You fly across the country to attend these events that, yeah, I don't have, I don't have a problem admitting this DJ. You go to events that I would never go to. I want you to describe that love. And again, we're wandering sort of into the therapy aspect of the interview a little bit again, but I'm okay with that. I want to understand that love. It is so much more than a hobby for you. How does it make you truly feel, DJ, when you're going to these races and you're going to these tracks? Because there is that chip and that thing and that cosmic part of you that I think a lot of people don't have, and I want to understand it. I really do. Well, it's. I mean, if I'm being totally honest with you, I, I think that even that has evolved um, a, a lot, honestly, it, it, it used to be just go to a race, go to a race, go to a race. I mean, there were years I was attending, you know, again, almost a hundred races a year just to go to races and, and, and maybe even a little selfishly, Michael, it, it, I think some of it was, was just to say, yeah. man, I went to a hundred races last year. It, it just, it sounded cool. Um, and, and somewhere along the way, I mean, again, it, it, that didn't move the needle for me anymore. And, and I found out what did move the needle for me was going to a, to a track I'd never been to. Yeah. Um, I love, I love to travel. I mean, that is, that is one of my favorite things. I just, I love traveling. Um, I have no problem traveling alone. I have no problem going by myself. The older I get, I, I really, I mean, I love traveling with my wife. I mean, that is, that's just, that's become a whole new level of, of hobby and, and fun for me for lack of better words. But going to a but going to a new track traveling is part of the adventure of it i think and it's 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 not just going to the track it is going there it's um you know seeing something that maybe you haven't seen before uh yeah all these tracks are the same but they're all different right i mean every single racetrack that we go to is a 
quarter mile, three eighths mile, half mile, whatever. They, you know, got pits. The format is basically the same. So, I mean, they're all basically the same, but there's so much difference about them as well. And, and that's what I love about it. I, I love the little differences, the nuances, the way things are done at racetracks. Um, again, the travel that goes with it, the visiting the local coffee shop the next morning or something, finding a good place to eat on Yelp. It's So it's kind of evolved from – just um, from just going to a lot of races to visiting new tracks to kind of making a, a almost a, a mini adventure out of it and, and kind of putting everything together. And I, I should say you've become a bit famous in this arena. That was a fantastic answer, and I, and I love that. You've become a bit famous, like literally, for again, the folks listening at home, uh, the local newspapers will do stories on DJ when he <laughs> comes to their area. It was North Dakota, right? Where that no local news and the look on your wife's face in the photo, Kimberly's face is just like, oh god, I can see it in her face, DJ, with the photo in the paper. That was uh, that was track number two hundred. That was Underwood, North Dakota. I remember that. Yeah, some little small town newspaper there. They they what a hot tip. What a hot tip that must have been for Underwood. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, and so this is look. This is terrible to say. I actually, I just I pulled that 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 result up on my on my spreadsheet here. I had no idea they had eleven modifies that day. I have no idea who won. So for the winner's name, I just I got I I wrote local jobber. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of places like that, give me a couple. What are the one or two, three, the best tracks that people have either never heard of DJ or are really under the radar uh, that you've, that you've gone to in your 280 plus. Um, I'm going to give you a couple. I'm going to give you a one that's no longer in existence. Everyone always asks, you know, what's your favorite racetrack or, or, you know, which one do you like the best? One that's no longer open is challenger raceway. Oh, love challenger. Loved it. Loved it. I mean, it, it was not that far from my house. It was a couple hours away. Um, but man, I just, it was kind of Lurville size shape this, you know, maybe slightly bigger three, eight, small four tens. Um, I saw so many guys win from the back there. I watched Rick Eckert win a win an April race, a day race from dead last one time. One of the last races they had, actually. Uh, but that place, just for whatever reason, produced phenomenal racing. And, and it's just, um, I don't know, there was just something about that place that, that I really, really liked. Um, in terms of under the radar and, and ones that, you know, ones that folks haven't heard of, I, I don't know that I've got a lot that folks haven't heard of. I love Marshalltown. I'm, uh, I really hope that our Castrol Flow Racing Night in America series uh, gets to, to do a race there. There's a lot of really, really, really good tracks in Iowa. I mean, I, I've really taken an affection to um, the Iowa IMCA racing scene because I think that they've got a lot of great things going there. Um, one that kind of stands out on that end for me is maybe Clay County Fair Speedway in Spencer, Iowa. They get ginormous uh, covered grandstands, a track, uh, three-eighths, tight, you know, great corners. And, uh, again, there's others in Iowa and, and all over the country. Um, but those are those are a few that, that kind of stand out as ones I really like. I, I got a few that, that I may never go back to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a perfect segue because we're, we're going to talk about some current event stuff here that you and I want to wrap on with you. But the <laughs> last sort of thing on you and your race chasing and your upbringing and stuff, worst racetrack experience you've ever had. I would love to hear it. Oh, God. Um I don't know the year. It, it was it was probably it was probably the late nineties. I'm gonna say ninety seven or ninety eight. Um, I went to Elkins one time. I'd never been to Elkins before, and, and Elkins, even though it's in West Virginia, is a fair fair ways away for me. It's about three hours away. Um, and, and they used to have an end of season race called the Forest Festival. The Forest Festival Fifty, I think it was. <laughs> forest, I already love forest, it. I already love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Forest Festival. Okay, so it was it was a little you know town festival they had there in, in Elkins or Buchanan or, or wherever it was. I'm I'm not going to pretend to know the history of it, but they they always ended their season or towards the end of the season they had the Forest Festival Fifty. And it was kind of a big race always through a, a pretty decent regional field and i'm there watching the race one time with with a buddy of mine and the late model helped the, the helmet dash, they called it the helmet dash back then the dash is out on the track and and they throw the caution you know two or three laps into this six lap dash I'm like man there's no no debris on the racetrack there's no you know, i don't see any cars spun nobody stopped or anything like that 
And they come on the PA system. I'm not sure who was announcing there at the time. It might have been PD Secret. And they come on the PA system and said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and stop our, uh, our late model dash here this evening because at this time we'd like to introduce you to the Forest Festival Queen. And the Queen <laughs> of the Forest Festival rides out. The cars all pull down, like, on the very inside of the racetrack. The Queen rides out on a convertible just like, like a prom queen would or something. Is waving to the crowd. It's this... This giant, you know, 15-minute ordeal. They literally stopped the program for to bring her out. And so here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. The story's not done yet. So they so they, they had this whole ordeal. She gets out of the car. She's waving to the crowd. they got to go down and interview her. I mean, it, it's this big 15-minute fiasco, right? So they come back. They finally finish the dash. You know, they, they run through the program. The Force Festival 50, the late model feature, comes out. They get just past halfway, and they get fogged out because, <laughs> because and the whole the thing I kept coming back to is they brought out the frickin' Forest Festival Queen. It was this 15-minute ordeal. If they hadn't done that, the show would have gotten in. Dave Groves won that year. I do remember that. Dave Groves won the race, and I think I think I remember the idea. He was driving a, he was driving a 32 car back then. I think I actually called the race on lap 32 because it got fogged out and you couldn't see. And the only thing I kept thinking was if they would have just run the freaking <laughs> day, not stopped it for the queen, they would have got it in. That is here. Look, I got El- Elkins. It's a great place. They got great, you know, folks in place there now and things like that. And and um, if it was closer, I, I'm I would love to go back. But actually, I have not been to Elkins since. That. Oh wow, the Forest Easter. Festival really did you in? Oh man. Oh right. <laughs> DJ, in addition to your life and your career, I wanted to dive into some current Dirt Late Model talk with you, too. And I wanted to treat this as much like it was me and you going down the road, right? You and I are always kind of driving together to the Wild West shootout every night. Let's talk about it. You know, it's it's me and you in the car after the race just rapping about stuff. I have a theory right now. You know how forever people used car counts as a wildly important metric in dirt late model racing, certainly more so sprint car, more so in late model than sprint car racing. It's never been that big a deal in sprint car racing. It's a huge deal in late model racing. I think that's finally dying. Other than our good friend Craig Dickens, uh, who just will obsess over car counts forever, Lucas Oil's had races in the 20s this year. Our Castrol races have been in the 20s, barely into the 30s. I don't think anybody really seems to care anymore. Are we finally putting the car count metric behind us as one that really is important? I, I would like to put it behind us, but I mean, again, if I'm being truthful, I, I don't. I we're not, don't. Know. We're not there I, yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. Yeah, I, I I don't think we're there yet. I think we're getting there, um, and more folks are understanding. But I mean, the the thing that that folks I think have to understand, and this is no disrespect to anyone, but you you always hear people talk about oh they had two hundred cars at you know at the Dream or at the World One Hundred or whatever else. So that was that was a different day and age oh, yeah. too. I mean, there were there were three times as many late, literally three times as many late models in, in the country back then as is what there is now. Um, you didn't have. Uh, literally 48 or 50 different regional series running at the time also and and so it was just it was a different time then and and so i i, I really and truly no disrespect to anyone I, I i hope that we can move past that and, and understand that um look only 22 24 guys whatever it is going to make the race and again if i'm being completely truthful i don't want to have to sit through two or exactly. three mains every single night right like exactly. i i want to go that's that's what has been so great about these castrol races that we've had man is we we've been in and out of there and i think we've had the late model feature on the on the yeah. track and, and in most cases done by nine thirty every single night it's been it's been great you you hit the flip side of that there's just so many less cars on the local level and, you know local racing to me isn't just under the gun i think local racing has been shot a few times and left for dead in some places this is a, a maybe a difficult question to answer, but if local racing would totally die, it's not going to happen tomorrow, it's not going to happen next year, but if it does totally die, does dirt late model racing as a whole die with it, do you think? Um, man, that's a great question. Uh, I don't, this is my honest opinion, I don't think that dirt late model racing completely dies, but I do think that we are seeing a, a slow-ish death of weekly dirt late model racing. Um, and we've already seen it, I think, in a few different pockets of yeah. the country. But there are places that are that are really struggling with car counts. And it's we could go into to a, an entire debate oh, about yeah. that, right? 
My personal opinion on it is this. There is not one driving factor uh, out there that, that causes that. And, and there are a lot of folks that like to point fingers and blame, you know, the cost being out of control or blame, you know, there's 8 million regional series now or, or you know, 100 other reasons. I, I, my firm belief is that it's a lot of things that, that come together that, that have brought us to this point it, it yeah our cost out of control absolutely i think we can all agree with that um what is what's the right step in in correcting that i, I don't know that i have that answer i don't know that it's as simple as just one answer uh, are there too many regional racing series my personal opinion is yes and, and again i don't say that to slight anyone i think that that some of them have a really good place in this sport but when when local tracks are only getting 10 12 15 cars a week and a regional series pops up um, and suddenly takes two or three or four guys away from all of those little racetracks, your, your late model car counts are suddenly up with, with seven or eight a week. Well, when the top class is not producing the number of cars it needs to, then your fans start going away. And, and so it's, it's this vicious cycle that we get caught up in that really isn't indifferent from a lot of other sports. But I think that, I think that more folks are recognizing it now, and I just hope that it's not too late to correct it, you know? You you mentioned weekly racing and weekly racers. You and Todd Turner, I don't think anybody looks at weekly results more than both of you. Uh, best two or three weekly late model drivers in the country. Who are they? Oh gosh, um, I think I think right now in right now as things stand, there are a lot of of really good young guys that that are running well. Um, in my area specifically, I look at the Carpenters, and yes, I know Tyler Carpenter won the Gateway Dirt Nationals, uh, but I, I look at him and Freddie and even Chris Carpenter, and I see those guys and think that, that you know, really and truly given the right opportunity, they would have a a really good chance to go out and, and run nationally. Um, there are others in the country as well. I think Drake Troutman is going to be really, really good. He has branched out a little more regionally. He's not really much of a, of a weekly guy anymore either, but I think he's one that has kind of uh, jumped in and, and done really well on kind of a, a regional level. Um, again, kind of locally speaking, I know, I know he's branched out some too, Mike Norris, but I think folks forget Mike Norris is a, you know, really a weekly guy at Murderville. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but again, I, I think that he, given the right opportunities he's had, he's had an opportunity, but I, I think he is one of the best weekly drivers in, in the nation as well. And, and again, I, I think it all depends on where you live and, and the pockets of, of drivers and things like that. There's some really good, uh, there's some really good weekly late model guys, uh, that run spec motor stuff like INCA country and, and everything too. The, uh, you know, the. I mean, you can go with with the Tad Pospisils or even the veterans like Jeff Ike and and everything. You know, those 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 guys, even though they don't get an opportunity to branch out much outside of the the little you know Malvern Bank Hoker Trucking uh, region and stuff. There's some really good cats out that way too. You sort of dogged on regional. I, I, let me take that back. I don't know that you dogged on regional series, but I, then my medics question sort of is counterintuitive to what you said a little bit. I think we've had a little bit of a a resurrection in, in regional stuff. And what I mean by that specifically is I think Chris, um, Chris Douglas, the guy got comp cams and Chris Douglas, Chris Sullivan, <laughs> um, the Chris Douglas works for comp cams, uh, Chris Sullivan and the comp cams tour. I've raved about that all year. I think Chris Zuver and what he's done with ULMS up in the Northeast, he might have a few too many races for my liking, but that's a solid tour. MLRA up their game a little bit with some high paying races this year. I'm actually kind of liking what I'm seeing in the regional tour, whether or not there are too many of them, them, that might be another debate, but I'm I don't know. I like I like some of what I'm seeing on the regional stuff right now. Am I nuts? Tell me if I'm nuts. No, no, no. I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I again if I'm being really honest with you, I think that you hit on a few of the ones that um that I really have taken a liking to, some of the ones that are um, really thriving. They've got some really good promotional push behind of them, some folks in, in really good positions that are doing really great things. But I I think that I think that too, just as much, you know, there there are there are series sometimes that come up just because a a series um, promoter or founder is looking to make a quick buck, also, and and that's not, I don't think, the the right way to do it. But again, the the Chris Zuvers of the world, the Chris Tillies of the world, the Chris Sullivan's, Dwayne Keat, you know, the, these guys that the MLRA group, you know, I mean, it's there are some really good people in really good places as well. And I don't want that to get lost in, in this translation because, um, you know, for, 
for every one series that seems to pop up out of nowhere that's just taking cars away from weekly track, there are five really good regional series like those guys have as well that are doing some really good things that are paying out uh, really nice purses for all of their events and have really nice season-ending rewards then uh, for their drivers too. Last couple of things, DJ. If Jonathan Davenport does in fact rally to win the Lucas Oil Championship this year, not only after the disaster, I mean, his speed weeks was comical, right? I love JD like a brother. His speed weeks was comically hilarious, like how bad it was. He Then he then he skips a race at Brownstown. They end up not running the feature. We still don't know how that's going to shake out, if he will or won't be able to race in September at this point uh, when the makeup happens. But if let's say he rallies to win the Lucas Oil Championship. Where would you rank that in your history of dirt late model stories? I, listen, I'm not saying it's Jim Dunn winning the first Dirt Track World Championship important, but it's pretty interesting to me if that could end up happening. It It is. I think that it will be one of those stories that we talk about for a long. Look, we, we talk about uh, JD's 2015 right, season for right. a long time, right? I, I think that it will be mentioned in those types of conversations. You know, when, when you say, man, remember the year JD won everything under the sun back in 2015? I think that, that on down the road, we will, we will associate 2021 with that being the year, if he does it, that being the year that JD won the won the Lucas Oil Championship and still missed a race. I think it is I think it is certainly up there in terms of the level of, of importance. Yeah, I agree. I just think it's it has it has it just stuff like that just does not happen, right? It's this such it will have such cachet to it for so long. Last thing before true or false. And this is this is truly DJ, a me and you three AM sitting at the counter in Arizona, still working, you're having a drink, I'm having a drink, I look up over my laptop and ask you a question like this. This is what this is what this question is. So prepare yourself. Do you ever just think to yourself sometimes, we have this sport, dirt late model racing. It truly is national, right? I mean, in essence, it's coast to coast, California all the way to Florida, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, wherever. Thousands of people go to events every year, millions probably by the time you add it all up, fans attend. And I say this somewhat endearingly, but no one really cares about it. (laughs) We have this thing that's so popular that no one really cares about. I mean, we care. It's popular for sure. But isn't it kind of staggering to you? It's this entire industry that exists that nobody really cares about outside of like a select niche of people isn't that sort of fascinating in a way it is it's it's staggering the number of people that i have tried to explain dirt track racing to so i don't know if i've ever told you this but my dad when i first started working for dirt on dirt my dad would tell everybody under the sun yeah Dustin works for dirt on dirt like and, and people get dirt on dirt. What like what is that? Like, no, I'm not even talking racing people. But like again, like he thought that it was just you know, oh, dirt. Everybody knows what dirt track racing is, sure, you know. So sure. and, beca- and and because everybody knows what dirt track racing is, then everybody knows what dirt on dirt is. And so to <laughs> uh, trying to explain racing to people is just, it's exhausting. It's just, I just I quit trying. It, I just quit. It is. It's just I'm always so staggered. You know, like I'll go to Eldora and Jesus this year, right? With the fan capacity opening, DJ, we're about to have some crowds at Eldora that are unbelievable. You know, there's 30,000 people on the grounds. Drive down to Dayton. I was at the racetrack up at Eldora. Huh? What? Like, I still don't even know. It's yeah, Eldora. Know. Yeah, it will always and, fascinate I mean, people, me, right? Oh, people can't spell Eldora, and they don't. You know, they had that. By the way, you hit the nail on the head. This is absolutely one of our 3 a.m. It, <laughs> it is. It is. We're sipping on a drink, working late at night. This is it's absolutely the type of thing we'd talk about. Let's <laughs> wrap it up as we do with every guest. True or false questions. I have four or five true or false questions for Dustin Jarrett. All right, here we go. Question number one, DJ. Simple, true or false answers here for you. Question number one, true. Let's just say swimming is not your strong suit. A, is that true or false? And B... I have a follow-up to that. You once dove into a pool to make $100, and it was only after you got out did I learn that swimming was not your strong suit, to put it lightly. Is, is that, are those two statements true or false? Both, both of those statements are, are true, and we, uh, we, we may or may not have been in, in Arizona, and, 
hitting golf ball, trying to hit golf balls into the swimming pool, which was very far away from yes. what we were hitting them, by the way. And, uh, yeah, you did offer up. I, actually, I'm still a little bitter about that because you, your exact words were, I'll give someone $100 if they jump in that pool for the golf ball. Well, I, I dove in the pool for the <laughs> golf ball, and for the $100, I just I came up without the golf ball. You didn't specify I actually had to get it. Did I, I thought turn almost had I thought turn was got to dive in after. Me, <laughs> <laughs> so don't if you see DJ out and about it's at Eldora by that pond, do not push him in if you're not prepared to save him. Okay, so that's the moral of the story. Uh, second true or false question. You and I love this one. You and Josh King once went to an IHOP in Tennessee. And the three cheese omelet said it was made from, and I'm, I'm going to enunciate this as best I can, real West Constant, W-E-S-T-C-O-N-S-T-I-N, West Constant cheese. Is that possibly true? <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that happened. We were, uh, Josh and I used to ride together to, uh, to East Bay to work these races, and, uh, we, I think the whole crew actually, the the whole the whole staff stopped there one night. Uh, I don't know where we were. We were somewhere in Tennessee, and they had like the little like a little tripod sign out front, you know, like the chalkboard or whatever, oh, yeah. with like the bright fluorescent colored lettering on it. Yeah, and it it actually said and this was I think it was late at night, maybe even after midnight. Uh, but the sign out there said, you know, today's special three cheese omelet made with real West. Constant <laughs> cheddar, and and Josh and I still to this day uh, laugh about that. Uh, or anytime, anytime we see or hear something with Wisconsin in it, we we immediately refer to Wisconsin then as West Constant. <laughs> true or false? You and James Essex, the famous voice of the Lucas Oil, and by the way, it was awesome to hear him last night call the heat races with you. I loved that at Brownstown. You and James Essex have had more than a few wild nights in Tampa together during your days at East Bay with the Lucas Oil Series. I'm not asking for specifics. Have you or have you not had some crazy-ass nights with James Essex? I don't think people think of him like that. There, that that's, that's true. That is, that is true. There, there, may have, uh, there, there may have been a little alcohol involved. Um, <laughs> Josh, Josh King may have also been involved in that. And um, after... <laughs> After going to a few different establishments, including Coyote Uglies with James, oh, by oh the my, way. oh uh, my, oh yeah, oh my, yeah. Uh, James may or, or may not have uh, been on the dance floor at our hotel bar doing the YMCA <laughs> with folks. <laughs> okay, and I, I will just I will just leave it at that and and let that's James's story to tell, and so I will I will let him tell the rest of the story if he so chooses. Final true or false question. True or false, you are, in fact, the worst sports fan in America. And let me couch that by the answer is already true. Uh, let me couch that by saying this. Dustin's allegiances are the Miami Dolphins, the Yukon Huskies, and the St. Louis Cardinals, just to name a few. There is no rhyme or reason for that set of allegiances whatsoever. True or false, the answer is true. You are the worst sports fan in America. I mean, why does why does that make me the worst sports fan? That's it, what I want to know. It just angers what? me for no logical reason. I'm angry about it, and I need the world to agree with me, Dustin. So, that, 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 so I do like all of those teams. As a kid growing up, everything around here was Pittsburgh this, Pittsburgh that. So I grew up hating Pittsburgh because they got all of the you know they got all the Pittsburgh Steelers, sure. this, Pittsburgh Pirates, that black and gold. This I still to this day I don't like black and gold. Uh, sorry, you know Berkey, but <laughs> but I, I don't like black and gold. And so my dad he never liked any local team. Pittsburgh, Cleveland. He never liked any local teams. But he would always you know we, we again I grew up in a sports household. We we would watch sports together. And I'd always cheer for whoever was playing his teams, and so that was—I I think that was how I got to be a, a St. Louis Cardinals fan and a and a Miami Dolphins fan. Like his allegiance was quite on the West Coast, right? He's a—he was a Raiders fan and a Dodgers fan. Uh, I don't—I don't know what happened to him, but I—it—it's it, something in the gene pool with the Jarrett family, <laughs> I guess. I blame him. <laughs> DJ, that was uh, that was an awesome hour. I, I really do want to thank you, and, and I I don't tell you this enough. And every once in a while, I'll send you a text message, and I have no problem admitting it on the air. I am. Everyone knows this about me. Uh, it, not only am I diagnosed ADD, but I fly around eight million miles an hour. It is hard for me to hold a thought in my head for more than a few minutes. I don't always tell the people close to me enough that I love them. But you are one of those guys that I will forever love. You have become such a great friend. 
I just because I'm bouncing around and, and, and send you things in Slack and email when I'm hitting you at wrong times does not change <laughs> any of that. <laughs> I apologize. And uh, and I, I hope people listen to this and really get a great idea of, you know, there's so much more to you than the guy behind the mic. Right. And, and I will forever appreciate all those things about you. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you, man. And uh, I mean, I I love you like a brother. I tell you that uh, all the time. And honestly, I mean, we we wouldn't be having this conversation, and I um, I wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for you. You were the one. I mean, how many times did did we talk about me working for Dirt oh, on Dirt before into fruition, right? Yeah, like, right. And it, you know, so it's I, I have you to thank for a lot of this, man. And I uh, I do. I, I love you like a brother. I really and truly do. All right, Ben Sheldon. I mean, Dustin Jarrett. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> DJ, I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate you, man. If you would like the deal of the century, which is 100 years, I have got the deal of the century. If you buy a car or truck from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, new or used, you get a lifetime subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing along with it. They are, Bomb, truly, truly the best people in the car or truck buying game that I have ever seen. And when I buy my next new car, it will be from Bomb Chevy Buick. Check them out now, bombchevybuick.com. That's B-A-U-M, chevybuick.com. They're the best in the business. And a lifetime subscription with it, that's literally a several thousand dollar value. Check them out, bombchevybuick.com today. Thank you to Dustin Jarrett for spending an hour with me, and and I wanted to hit on this again. I don't think people truly understand. You think you like racing, and you do. I know you do because you're listening to this, but DJ doesn't just like it. He is the living embodiment of everything that is dirt track racing, breathing it and eating it. That's mild for him. His DNA is composed of dirt track racing. He thinks about it when he sleeps. His dreams are about it, and for that, for all of those reasons, our sport is actually better because of it. And that is from the bottom of my heart. I really mean that. We wrapped up another Flow Racing Night in America at Brownstown on Wednesday. Congrats to Kyle Larson on the win. And we are three weeks in a row starting this coming week. Marshalltown, Tri-City, and Florence. How fun is that? Seriously, how awesome is it? That lineup, three weeks in a row. Marshalltown, Iowa, Tri-City in Illinois, and then Florence. And then after Florence, we hit our summer break, and we will return in September uh, for Fairbury. But we do have double dreams coming up live on Flow Racing. Don't forget that as well. Oh, by the way, I, I did get a shitty email from someone who said to me, Rigsby, we get it. You don't want to hurt the feelings of the national tour guys, that you know, Schwally and Casey and those guys. We get it. Uh, to that guy, I say this. F off. <laughs> I'm not going to stop talking about my affinity for both those tours because I mean it. This this is my official response to that email is just, just F off. I bring that up because a lot of our summer break that we're taking for Castrol Flow Racing Night in America, we are not scheduling on top of the summer races for Lucas, the Outlaws, or the Hell Tour. But shit at this race, you know, Sam Driggers might have summer nationals races in September, the way this thing's going, but that's another topic for another day. I do have a guest idea to close out the month of May. I'm not sure he'll come on this show, speaking of the National Touring Series. I'm just not sure he wants to come on with me or not, but I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best, but I'm not sure he wants to do it for a number of reasons. But he is my target, and I will work on that uh, right around Memorial Day. Until then, thank you guys, and thanks, Dutch and Jarrett. See you soon on the Rigsby Report.